Thank you so much for joining us as we start Fan of the Fans. I am your host, Christina Garnett, and we are talking about fandoms, what makes people fans, what's exciting about it, and how can we learn from it in the community and business space. I am joined today for an extra special treat. I am joined by Vanny Boy and Maddie Man from the Rustic Playground podcast. And I'm very excited to talk about something that I know that they are both massive, massive, massive nerd fans about. We're talking about MST3K or Mystery Science Theater 3000. And so this show, it's lovingly known as MST3K, created this perfect mix of sci-fi and comedy for fans, specifically Gen X. And they know many of them have been following it for decades. So to get started, Vanny Boy... I know you're a longtime fan. I also know that you introduced Maddie Man to MS3-3K, and I know that you have incredible taste because you you are my husband. Yes. So I would love to let you start by sharing a little bit about what exactly is MST3K. Yeah, MST3K was a, a comedy show that was created by Joel Hodson in about 10 minutes uh, on a napkin one day in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It was on uh, November 26, 1988, which was two days before Christina's sixth birthday. So that was monumental. And uh, basically, they would play movies that they had the rights to, which were, of course, cheap and terrible at the time. And they would just sling insults and comedy at it. And initially, they just started out literally setting their they made the jokes the first time they saw the, the movies and once it got picked up by the Comedy Channel, as it was called then, Comedy Central now, it was uh, turned into a pretty big hit. They would go and get all this. You've seen it before. It's terrible movies, and they watch them, they make fun of them, and in the corner you see the silhouettes of a human being surrounded by two robots, Crow T. Robot, my personal favorite, and uh, Tom Servo, and they just would throw slander and... <laughs> And fun, it was the perfect mix of Gen X because it's just not taking anything seriously and absolutely throwing shade on everything. I love that. So I'm I'm also a Crotee Robot fan. I love I love a smart ass. Now, Maddie, you were also like a film nerd. So this also feels like the perfect kind of connection for you. A little bit of sci-fi, a little bit of nerddom. And then we got all these, all these films. What was it like for you when you were introduced to it? And it's like, well, like, what was the pitch of like, you should watch this? Uh, probably beer. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> beer. Uh, we're at Van's apartment and he's like, Maddie, you got to see this. And obviously it was like nothing I'd seen, probably because most of these crappy old movies, I had maybe seen just parts and pieces of on, you know, cable TV from the 80s. You know, it was a weird concept of making fun of a film. Um, We didn't have a concept of it being known as a riff. Right. So, I mean, it was hilarious. But when you tried to explain it to somebody who had not been exposed to it, particularly somebody who was older, like, well, why would you want to make fun of a movie? You can't hear it when they're talking. That kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. Like, why would you want to spend time if they're like making fun of it and speaking over it? The creator, Joel Hodgson, he once said that not everybody will get it, but the right people will. And I think that pretty much sums up Mystery Science Theater 3000 and their fan base. Yep. I love that. So when we're thinking about these, do you have any specific favorites? Like, what what is it about it? Like, what is the secret sauce of the recipe that makes MST3K 
something that I know you were both absolutely obsessed with. Like, what is it? Like, what's the trigger? Well, you know how Monty Python is in one point silly, but yet also brilliant. Well, that's Mystery Science Theater 3000. That's what they did. They, you know, they were not above fart jokes and they would bring in pop culture, lots of pop culture as references in the movie. And as the movie would go on, they would also reference things that happened in the movie. And there was just a certain amount of of brilliant writing mixed with lunacy and wackiness. It was just a little off kilter and it all just worked perfectly. It was a perfect storm of insanity. I think with the idea that you have a small group of writers and, and they get to eventually find their groove, as it were. Yeah. And then take a line or a riff, a joke, what have you, from one episode and then bring it into another one, say three movies later. Yep. To see, you know, who's listening or who's paying attention. Watch out for snakes. Right. There's um, there's literally one episode where, uh, you know, the guy who played Jaws in the James Bond movies, uh, he plays a caveman in modern times. And the guy who made this movie was like a car dealer or something. And he wanted to make it as a vehicle, no pun intended, for his son to uh, become a star. And the, they ended up having obviously bad editing and such. So at one point they're walking through this desert and they're talking and they sound just like me, you know, normal. And then next thing you know, it's watch out for snakes. It's like not even remotely anybody else that's in the movie. And you have to wonder like, why did they even put that there? What does that watch out for snakes? What? And then you would, the fans, the misties as we're called would end up watching other episodes that occasionally you, you know, if somebody was going outside, you'd hear one of the comedian jail, watch out for snakes. And so you didn't have to know that reference. If you were watching that episode, if that was the first time you've ever seen it and you didn't see Ega, which is the name of the original. But if you did, it's just a little bit more feeling like inside baseball. So if someone's listening to this and they've never watched a single episode, what is their entry point? Like, what's the one episode of MST3K that you would that you would say, like, this is where you need to start? Well, I think most people would say Manos, right, Maddie? Uh, I think Manos would be a tough one to start with. <laughs> just because on a technical level, <laughs> it's very difficult yeah, to hear. <laughs> that yes. one hurts a lot. It does. Yeah. How about um, some of the ones that, okay, now there's, there's been, there were two initial hosts. There was Joel and he left, I guess, in the fifth season midway through, and he was uh, replaced with uh, Michael J. Nelson. And they had a different writing style. It was a little softer, not quite so zany and out there, not so many deep cuts kind of thing. And uh, I would say that maybe Space Mutiny, because a movie that you could that's bad enough that it's like pretty bad, but yet you could still watch it on a on a Saturday afternoon and not really turn the channel off. You'd be like, this is just kind of funny. It's pretty bad. Only they that make one, it 10 times better. Yeah, I would say something that's also more recent like that, like that would be what, late 80s? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's a knockoff of, of uh, Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> And I would say another one that's, that would work, and it's a knockoff film, would be Pod People. 
Oh, oh like that, that horrible alien. Yeah, it's supposed to be Trumpy. like Trumpy was his name, right? Yes, they they're have... touching into the ET zeitgeist. <laughs> I guess. Yes, but very they're doing likely. a bad job. Very, very bad job. And uh, again, this was during Joel's tenure, so it was a little more art house. Maybe you want to say how their mm -hmm. their humor was, but yeah, a lot of the movies that they did, they had especially early on, they were really, really bad quality very hard to to watch if you were to watch it by yourself you'd be like this is ter you know was a shot on a old flip phone i mean it just looks that bad not to mention the lighting was poor and the acting was terrible and the dialogue was awful so you know everything made it bad and so you had to be kind of dedicated in some senses to watch every episode they had like between 26 and 32 episodes per season and they had 10 seasons in their initial run so uh some of them are you know, not everybody's gonna gonna be able to dig into some of those those movies. But when they got a little later on, and got a little more famous, and got a little more money, they were able to go in and get uh, movies that had been made in the last like 25, 30 years, for example. So they were in color, which a lot of people don't like the black and white movies, and they'd be in color and they'd be a little little higher quality. So with that added budget, did you feel like, yes, they can get movies that are probably like newer, probably larger names, people that things that people would recognize. But do you feel like there was any drop off of it? Like I'm a Red Dwarf fan. And as it got more money, like everything got shinier, but it almost kind of felt like it lost, like what made it so special. Did you find that with MSD3K? I would say that the only time that ever happened and and the writers particularly uh uh, Michael J. Nelson, because uh, Joel was gone at that point. Mike and the two guys who did the the robot voices, the bots, Trace Ballou and Kevin Murphy. It was famous enough that Warner Brothers, whoever, came to them and was like, hey, you know, we want you to, to make an MST3K, the movie. And they didn't want to do it. And they're like, here's a budget and here's all this. But, you know, they kind of forced them into it. And they made it and it was funny and everything. But, yeah, it definitely had a much higher quality of the sets you know part of what made mst so good for a lot of people was that it just looked like something that joe schmo a very creative joe schmo but joe schmo could have done in their basement they just uh, you know, if you look at the sets you'll see that the walls that are supposed to look like something out of you know some science fiction thing looks you'll there's like molds of toys and stuff that are that make up the texture of the walls just whatever they found they put it together. And then when they made the movie, they had a higher budget and it's just, it doesn't have the same heart to it. Yeah. I was going to say that the show had the look of something that some teenagers threw together. I mean, very skilled teenagers, but still it had that, I don't know, how do you describe it? That kind of loosey goosey, like everything you could tell was sort of like we, we cobbled it together. Right. Well, it's in like everything about the show was made with the same creative umph that like the bots were. So the two the two most famous bots, Crow T Robot and Tom Servo, Crow that the, literally the night before they did their first episode because they, you know, he pitched it to the guys like here's what it is on this napkin and he went home and made them, made the robots uh which are actually puppets. And Crow is his head is a mix of a lacrosse uh face mask that was sitting around and a uh, a bowling pin that they cut in half to make his his mouth, and so everything was just like, oh, what do I have laying around the house? And that's what that you know, Tom looks like a a gumball machine. He is a gumball machine, yeah. 
you know, they, they, he slapped it together for that, you know, that first show. And then they kind of, they honed it as it went along, but it's still, you know, the show, even up until the very last episode of the original run still had that heart, just not the movie. The movie was overdone and the writers would tell you that too. So I think it's also interesting to note too, that like MST3K isn't just for the fans. It's actually created a lot of resurgence of films, especially like B movies that are like being able to be rewatched as entertainment instead of being snubbed as they were before. I'd love Maddie for you to talk about like how MST3K and also Rift Tracks, we'll probably have to dive into that too. Like how that has created a really enduring impact in Hollywood. Like for example, if we look at Tommy Wiseau and The Room, does that, do we even know what that movie is if we don't have MST3K and Rift Tracks? Uh, that would definitely be um, lost to video on demand, I'm sure. Yes, if that. Yeah, if that. Um, interesting enough, I think that was as video stores were pretty much on their last legs. You know, Netflix was destroying the blockbuster model. So who knows if how well it would have even done in that market had there been no Rift Tracks, Mystery Science Theater, what have you. I think for underground cinema, I think for just B movies in general. I think this, the awareness is so much greater and the appreciation is greater. Yeah. Thanks to those shows. Yeah. And you know, a lot of them were not only saved from obscurity, but probably saved from extinction. So for example, Manos, the hands of fate, which is very famous now, even to the point of Christina and I were watching uh, Sherlock. I think, what was it we were watching? The Sherlock Holmes show with Lucy Liu, like Elementary, yeah, yeah, Elementary, and in it, the uh, this woman had killed this guy, and she was pinning it on someone else, and she's like, "Yeah, here's spoiler, a- spoiler alert, spoiler, spoiler alert," uh, and and her husband was a big fan of like terrible movies and stuff, and so when she described the murderer, I'm sitting there with Christina, and they they pull up the the drawing, the police sketch, and I was like, "Holy crap, that's." That's Torgo. I mean, I was like freaking out. Wow. He lost it. He like legit lost it. I was like, I can't believe it. You know, Torgo's on CBS. What in the world? And, uh, you know, it was, it turned out that she was using what she knew and that was what she thought nobody would ever recognize it. But that movie was made by almost on a bet, right, Matt? That was, uh, this, uh, a fertilizer salesman of all things had seen a horror film and was like, yeah, you know, I could make one of those. It can't be that hard. So he literally sunk his money, not a lot, but into making the film and, you know, used locals and stuff like that. And, uh, it just happened to be in a bin at the bottom that someone at, at, as far as they knew at that point, only one copy existed and it was not a good copy. And they reached out to Frank Conniff, one of the key writers and who also played uh, TV's Frank on the show and was like, hey, man, uh, I watched this thing and it's really bad. It might be something you guys are interested in. And so they showed it. It became legendary to the point of now they've made several, you know, several unwatchable sequels. And I say unwatchable because, as Frank said, these are called the worst movies ever, right? But they're not because they're filled. Most of them are filled with passion. The the writers and directors, they're really trying their best. They're just not talented. And, but they really are putting everything. Right. Into there's it. enthusiasm. There's some eagerness about it. Right. As opposed to say transformers, which is a you know, heaping pile of garbage <laughs> that costs $200 million that 
no one why it's literally like turn off your brain well yay well i feel like that's also become like turned into how we salvage our movie nights when we pick something bad and then we have to see like all right this sucks can we misty it and there's been sometimes we're like, no, even mocking it isn't enough. I need to destroy it. Yes. And there's been well, some where we where we are like, this is going to be bad. Let's misty it. And then we kind of get into it. So I also feel like that's your default setting. If you're not in, if you're not excited about watching it, like your your inner Croti robot shows up just to be like <laughs> just to be a little smart about it. It's it's interesting. It's it's I kind of start to expect it nowadays. Yeah, you well, know. well, the missus and I, we're we're into um, horror films, and so we have Shutter, and you know, we just scan through that, and we'll see anything if it's particularly uh, early '80s, sometimes '70s, uh, whatever we can find. We want the older ones. Um, there's just something about those, even the crappiest of those older horror films, where you could tell somebody was really into doing this. Right. They may not know what the hell they're doing. But you get some occasionally good moments and then others, you you know, you get to mercilessly rip that apart. I so. guess it, I guess it's kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking now that, you know, you could take something like uh, Bon Scott, for example, the first singer of ACDC. And people would initially say he really doesn't have that good of a voice and uh, but he's really putting everything into it. Now he's a legend. Or you can just listen to someone do auto-tune and it's soulless. You know, art is nothing if it's soulless. And I think that's that's what a lot of people who watch Mystery Science Theater 3000 love about it is they're Joel and the bots or Mike and the bots, the writers. Yeah, they're making fun of it, but they also love these things. You can tell, even though they've probably watched them, these bad movies, like 30 times, literally, to get the writing tone of it and stuff. But they enjoyed their job. That's why they kept it for so long. So this is a this is a question I did not prepare you for, but I'm very interested. Is there a movie that you wanted them to do that they just haven't done yet or never did? Uh, well, that's where Rift Tracks comes in, because a lot of people, when... Mystery You're, Science Theater. I'm going to have to stop you there. You're going to have to explain what Rift Tracks is. Okay. When Mystery Science Theater went off the air, a lot of people had been like, how come they never did Titanic or something like that? A big, a big block, but you know, uh, uh, Casablanca and the, uh, I don't think I could watch a Rift Tracks of Casablanca. I'd get angry. That movie's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did it and they did it to, to prove they could. But um, basically what they, what people were asking is how come you did these crappy movies and not, you know, these big blockbuster jaws or whatever. And then, you know, the real answer was we didn't have the money for it. Right. But when riff tracks came along, Michael J. Nelson uh, started that. And basically he thought, okay, well we can't afford to create a movie version of us doing Titanic. So they started out just doing the riffs and selling the riffs. So you would put it in your tape deck or whatever you had. Beginning of the tape, they'd say, start your movie, five, four, three, two, one, two. And you would sync it up with watching your own movie. So they didn't have to pay for the rights for it. And, um, you know, they started doing big blockbusters and it started making money and it started getting bigger. And then next thing you know, they're they're doing their own their own thing. They they do have the bad movies that they do. And uh, with those bad movies, they don't have the show part of it. So you don't have like the silhouettes with the bots and stuff like that. They just they're just throwing riffs at it. But that's what Rift Tracks does. You can go to rifttracks.com and they have hundreds of these things now. 
So do you think that would be an easier entry point? So if you're like, I don't know if I can do like a 1980s B movie kind of vibe or a black and white or like one of those school specials. Yes. Like maybe I'm just not in the vibe for that. Would you recommend Riff Tracks as like the gateway yes. drug? Okay. Absolutely. I would. Would you, Maddie? Yeah, I would. Um, the only thing is, is if you're doing a bigger budget film where they're only providing you with the audio, it's up to you to sync their audio with the movie. Well, they do have an app now. And there is an app, yes. And and before that, you could try to sync it up over your computer. Now, is that as convenient as now with the with the phone app? Uh, you know, that that was not. So I never I never tried it or bothered with it because I thought I'm really here for the for the the gems, you know. Right. I want the the refuse. Right. I want the garbage that no one else wanted. Yeah. Yeah. The app that they that Rift Tracks has is uh you basically after you purchase it, it it downloads onto your phone or whatever, and it hears your TV, so it syncs up. So if it starts to drag one way or the other, it catches itself up. So, uh, but you know me being a super nerd, uh, what I started doing is I would I'd buy the the jokes only, and then I would have the movies and I would rip them and I'd put them in my program and put them together with Adobe Premiere or whatever. And and I tried to watch them with Christina, but they have this thing that they do that syncs it every now and then so it's like um you know like a a metallic voice so you'll know that if you're a little late yeah it's jarring (laughs) it like completely removes you from the atmosphere that it's created and so it's it's i love watching it with her so much i went in and removed all of those and and everything so (laughs) it it pays to have a hub so he's like i can do whatever you need just point me to the editing software (laughs) that's right you're very dedicated more so than me yeah well I don't know. I, I just I wanted to have uh, have those experiences with Christina, because when you know, we did mention that this that the original show was very Gen X centric. And by that, I mean, probably only a Gen Xer would really would really, really love that show. And because it has references to things, commercials and old commercials and shows and, and theme songs and stuff that we grew up with as kids, even even references to things that we would know from our, you know, greatest generation grandparents, you know, being with them and hearing, you know, watching Mannix and things like that. So I was so excited. And, you know, Christina's 13 years younger than I am. And and I was like, yeah, she said, dad, I used to watch it with my dad. I did. <laughs> I loved it when it was on Comedy Central. I have since realized I was just in love with Crotee Robot. Yeah, because we started <laughs> watching it and she was she was not getting a lot of the references because she just wasn't born, right? So her her experiences were totally different than mine. So I'm I'm laughing and she's just like, I didn't get it. Yeah, you didn't get it because you you never saw that commercial. So but that doesn't mean that if you're if you're not Gen X, you wouldn't appreciate the show. You will. It's funny, especially when it got to the mic years because they were more uh self-referential so they were within the show they were making more references to the movie you're actually watching and and then riff tracks is even better with that because they have a lot of younger writers that they've brought in as well millennial writers and uh so those references are more you know would make would hit home with them i need one of those like wiki pages where it breaks and it may it may exist I, i just need a wiki page that like breaks down all the easter eggs and all the references they have a website where they actually any of the ones that they can have the rights to that isn't taken down by a shout factory, which is the ones who owns a lot of them. And they go in and they'll have like pop up videos boop, used to have and they pop up and tell you the, the reference to the joke. video. Yeah. Oh, I'll bring back pop up video. Yeah. 
And it gets a little annoying sometimes watching it because, you know, if it's like they make a reference to Crazy Train or something and they're like, Crazy Train was a song written by Ozzy Osbourne and Randy wrote. You're like, duh, it's like super famous. You don't have to tell me that one. Just tell me the one that's the reference to the, yeah. you know, well, the well it's basically the you're looking at it as an annotated version. Yeah. At one point, I remember on the Twitterverse, there was an annotated MST poster, and I I haven't seen it in a while, but those you really can't control. It's whatever they're putting out on the Twitter the Twitterverse. Yeah, you got to hope they're right, too, because they may not necessarily be right. I was such a nerd when it first came out. This is before, uh, this is, uh, when was it, like 95, 96, something like that, when I first started playing around making websites and I made a, an episode guide to mystery science theater. And they, they even had that like featured in some of their articles and stuff is really cool. Put a lot of time into it. <laughs> now it's lost forever, but whatever. Lost it, in the annals of time. Just put yes. it in the portfolio. Like you can't find it now, but it existed and they saw it. And that's yes. what matters. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> Now, I, I think that one of the lasting effects of MST3K, you know, I love it, obviously, and it's had a lot of cool, positive effects on culture and how people address certain things. But it's also some of the, uh, you know, it's almost got taken to the nth degree with, you know, everyone's so cynical and <laughs> everything, you know, everything sucks to some people. And it's like... Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't there to be mean. You know, they have some snippy comedy and comedy is, you know, is rooted in truth. And not everybody likes the truth, but they were never out there to blast anybody or be mean to anybody, really. And I think that that inspired a a certain part of culture and a lot of it's in social media and stuff today, because that's what we mostly ingest this kind of thing from. And, you know, people don't have the same love behind their snippiness. It just becomes mean sometimes. I think that's the little negative offshoot of Mystery Science Theater. But I'd trade all that in to keep that show going. So, Yeah, well, I think they pointed out several times that no matter how bad that movie is, a lot of people put a lot of time into putting that thing out, you know, as far as cast members, technical people. Sometimes out of their own, mostly out of their own pocket. So I think there's... A certain level of respect for if anyone can do this, then, you know, more power to them. We, we, they're not malicious no. about it. I mean, like, just because you're incompetent doesn't mean you're a bad person, I guess, is what you could amount it to. But something we haven't talked about, I just thought of it is the, the, all the little shorts they would they would riff. Those were the most popular in general. Because think of it that way, and and most of them being educational in some way, shape, or form. Educational yeah. how? I don't know, but. <laughs> well, like, for example, Down on the Farm, I think is what it was called. And this was a educational video that was uh, produced by a company, Cornette, I guess it is, that made thousands of these things. And lots of people, Gen Xers in particular, would see these in like health class or whatever. And they'd be like 10 minutes long and just tell a little story about city kids that come to visit their uncle down on the farm. And I mean, it's they're they're 10 minutes long or whatever, and they are just packed full of hilarity. And most people look at those as the best things. The reason they did those is because the crappy movies they did were generally short. And each episode of MST3K was two hours long. So, you know, if the if the crappy movie was 90 minutes long, they had to fill it 
somehow and that's how they would that's one of the main ways they would do it but i always loved the the shorts and if you... something i was thinking as well is for um you know like the classic say uh 50s movie fan mm-hmm. if they went to a movie they'd probably see a short before the actual movie too yeah they did so... that too riff tracks has done that they did uh 1948 batman serials and, uh, you know, it's it's hilarious in so many ways, but in particular, it cracks me up when the mask that the guy that's playing Batman, it's clearly like made of felt or something and it covers his eyes. So he has to like kind of look up like he's looking down through glasses or something. He can't see anything. It's it's absolutely hilarious. But <laughs> it's uh, one of those things where it, it always starts from the previous cliffhanger and ends with a cliffhanger and the cliffhanger is like you know, will Robin die? And then the next episode would be named Robin survives. I mean, so they blow it right there automatically anyway. Yeah. And then you'll think, oh, how is he going to get out of that burning building or the explosion (laughs) in the car exploding and going over the cliff? And then the very next episode, oh, he just got out. Yeah. He just rolled out of the car. Yeah. That was it. Big, big whoop. Anybody didn't have to be Batman and Robin to do it. It could have just been an old man. It's hilarious. So we they. So, so good, babe. No, you're fine. Go ahead. I was just going to say, so they, you know, Riff Tracks, which the style of writing for the comedy that Riff Tracks has is more palatable for the average person, I would say. And they have a lot of those things. They have the serials. They have the shorts. They also have the really, you know, terrible movies that we've been mentioning. They've got, they've redone some of the ones they did in Mystery Science Theater, and they've done a whole bunch of new ones. And um, they also have the the wives. Uh, uh, well, Mary Jo Peel was was one of the main writers, and then Mike Nelson's wife, Bridget. Uh, they put those girls together, and they do their own, and they do uh, Sherlock Holmes, like the basil rathbone or whatever his name was and i like those i know you're not the biggest fan christina but i i I think they're funny as hell i i i can't i'm just not a fan (laughs) but also like i'm not a fan of the new crow t robot either like they do a great job and like kudos to them but i that i when i say that like i absolutely loved it as a kid and then as an adult i realized that i just absolutely loved crow t robot and i wanted my own crow t robot to sound just like him like that's mm. what i wanted and so like i am full-on team except no substitutes and so it's just when we've watched him you've tried to you've tried to have me sit there and it's just like i will climb the wall get me out of here it's just not for me yeah well i mean you know i use and i'm sure maddie does too uh you know some of these sayings and things that we've seen and mystery science theater and i mean you know like somebody will be telling me their most heartfelt secret about you know how their dog died and if they pause for a second i want to say crotey robots get to the part where you pee but it doesn't seem appropriate at the time so i just let (laughs) it slide so we've talked about how um you were saying that they're not pretty they're not really territorial if other people want to kind of do things they're they're kind of they're they're okay with it they play nice um, but they did, they did come back, like it, it did have a resurgence mm-hmm. and there was a Kickstarter campaign. And I feel like those campaigns kind of really showcase like how strong is the fandom actually? Mm-hmm. Because saying you're a fan and then actually putting your money where your mouth is very, very different. And so yes. the Kickstarter campaign raised over $6 million. And so I know that you're both backers, but would love to know like, Why? Why would you back it? What was your experience? Like what made you just see that and be like, I am a hundred percent giving what, like, what was that thought process like? 
Well, I'll 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 be brief here because yeah, because uh, I only gave a hundred bucks, which was what I was given at the time, and you know I'm like I'll give this hundred bucks to these guys and come back and see what they can do because I loved them and I have had you know I've watched many of the episodes many many times. I have thousands of hours of fun and happiness in my life that these you know, these comedians have given me. So I was like, what the hell? I'll give them I'll give them some money and come back and see what they can do. But Maddie is the man and uh you know even to the point where he took me up to new york and we had a great time and he can cover all that go maddie yes uh well i was a an associate producer i believe was my credit on the kickstarter campaign uh but really it just came down to the fact that joel was back he had access to the property again right and knowing um from almost 15 years ago that he had really not wanted to leave at the time when he did leave in the 90s, he made it sound like, oh, you're just got different directions. But he really didn't want to leave is what we found out later. So finally seeing him having access to his creation and bringing it back. And I knew it wasn't going to be the same right. as it was you know, in my 20s. I'm not expecting it to. I want to see new blood, you know, new creativity, new angles, new aspects. So I was excited just because I want to see where what was the next chapter going to be. Yeah, I, and, and a, a quick aside here to say to say what kind of man uh, Joel Hodgson is. Uh, he created this show. He was the leader of the show, and you know he put his blood, sweat, and tears into it. And he started having some you know butting heads with with the producer of the show and or director, I guess, and producer mm -hmm. uh, who was a good friend of his to begin with. But they they started butting heads a lot creatively, and then. Joel thought, well, instead of tearing this thing apart by having, you know, people will pick sides. And instead of doing that, I'll just exit gracefully and just let somebody else take over because he didn't want it to be tainted and fall apart and have negative feelings around it and all that. And uh, so Mike was the the natural successor. He was the head writer, which Mike will tell you means he was just the one that could type the fastest. So that's why they put him as head writer. But, you know, instead, of, he fell on a sword as you know, Maddie Man sort of stated, I, I I can't thank Joel enough for that because we would have not had the last like four or five years of this show had he been a selfish person and decided, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and stick to my guns and let it all fall apart. Yeah, definitely. It would not have lasted to 99. Something I was thinking of by by leaving at the time he did, I think there were other other people on the show who were also, you know, there were changes. So let's we've got, say, Trace. He had left and then Joel left or which who left first. So Joel left and then Frank left and then Trace left. So that was three of the founding members of the show and three of the top writers. So it was and the weirdos. They were the main weirdos. So that's why it had mm -hmm. the feel of it changed after they they left. It was more palatable. So it wasn't like, oh, it's a bad thing because it's different. I mean. I love both. It's like Van Halen, right? I love David Lee Roth and I love Sammy Hagar and it's all Van Halen and I'll still listen to it today. So that's basically the same. Yes. So I guess what I'm trying to get at with Joel leaving was it kind of gave the the okay of changes, you know, like other things can change. Other people can come and go and the show can still survive. Right. So whether or not that was any inspiration to everyone else or not, I, I just feel like that was the kind of show he he created that you could have people come in and out of so long as you keep the spirit of the show. Right. It's like Kiss. 
right? As long as you have Gene and Paul, you're going to have, uh, it's going to be Kiss. And one of those guys leaves, it's not going to be Kiss anymore. So even though he was a Paul or a Gene, uh, he had set it up well to the point that it not only survived, it thrived. Now it did get canceled from the comedy channel uh, or comedy central. It was at that point. And the reason that happened wasn't because of ratings, because it was one of the top rated shows there. It helped make that entire channel. They played it over and over again. And I would have uh ex-girlfriend put a tape in a VHS tape in at certain times and take it out and put another one in. And then I would pick them up and then I'd go to VCU and I'd watch them for hours and hours and hours. So Comedy Central decided they wanted to go with the cussing cartoons more <laughs> and less <laughs> with the mystery science theater kind of stuff. And so they were uh, they were canceled. And then the Misties got together and made a ruckus, enough of a ruckus that the Sci-Fi Channel was like, OK, we'll, we'll give it a shot. And they had what, Maddie, three more years after that? Yeah, three or four seasons, I'm pretty sure. And so, you know, it was it was a cultural thing. It was a, a time capsule and uh you know it added a lot of enjoyment to my life and and maddie man and i would sit around for hours and hours on the weekends at vcu drinking beer you know shooting the shit watching mst yeah i was just watching last night the uh the brain that wouldn't die no that's the first one with mike yeah the first full one yeah yeah and mike is a the 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 two main hosts that are relevant to what we're talking about joel was to the bots like their dad he you know he'd put them in there he'd put them to bed he'd tell them bedtime stories about what it was like growing up in in the 60s and blah 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 and then when uh mike took over he was more like the big brother it was it was definitely a different feel but it was still great yeah and i don't know why there was this um brouhaha maybe at the time about oh it's it's a joel versus mike right or mike versus joel and really yeah. there there was no there was no, they're, they're like different so yeah. no one's so i don't know why how that ever started well i mean people one camp versus the other right people are uh tribal right so we, it was basically the same thing as kirk or picard it's like well they're both awesome and they're both different and why are you having it can't you like them do you have to choose one like precisely you know, like, just like, just like okay, yeah, or here's a, a one where people will say, oh, Beatles or Rolling Stones. Well, how about both? Right. Or just how about the Beatles and screw the Rolling Stones? Yeah. Or oh. some of them. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, just just be careful when you're around the swimming pool. Nice. Um, <laughs> well, before, oh. before we keep starting fights. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned something that I think I think was really interesting is that you mentioned the spirit of the show. Can you really quantify or like describe like what you mean by that? Like, what is the spirit of the show, or is that one of those like ephemeral things? It's like you know it when you feel it, or you know it when you see it. Uh, well, a lot of it is you know very touchy feely, but I mean, I think when I think of the spirit, I think of something that's lighthearted, not. You know, they're not trying to malign it. I mean, if it's something that's just absurd in front of them and they're and they're they're going off on it, then then you kind of get it. It's it's not never a, a mean spirit about it. No. It's it's about having fun, but at the same time, yeah, damn, that is ridiculous. Yes. Like that... like like okay, and uh space mutiny, the the woman who dies and then later in the movie she's at one of the monitors. <laughs> right. They they messed that up. Yeah. Yeah. 
She so, literally dies, like is murdered by the main bad guy, very obviously right in front of your face. And then three scenes later, when they're walking through the some hall or whatever, she's sitting at a thing. They, you know, they didn't do it. Either somebody forgot that she died or they did it out of order. Who knows? I'm just saying out of order, probably. But yeah, you know, little yeah. things like that you catch that they catch and point out. It's pretty cool. I would say yeah. for, for me, one of the main hooks of Mystery Science Theater for Gen X in particular is uh, that it's nostalgic. And nostalgic in the way that, oh, I remember sitting at my mom's house eating a hamburger while I watched this you know, cheap movie that she wanted to see on, uh, you know, we didn't have cable. So it was on, you know, ABC at 3.30 on a Saturday afternoon. And, you know, that's the nostalgia of that and the commercials when we grew up and the references mm -hmm. to the movies when we grew up. And then now I look at it with nostalgia of watching this thing with Maddie and, and at that time in my life at VCU in my early 20s. And I'm like, I have nostalgia for watching the show about nostalgia. Pretty deep. Love that. Yeah. So when we talk about nostalgia, the two of you have a podcast that's specifically about that nostalgia for <gasps> next. Can you <laughs> can you tell us about the Rusty Playground and why why is it called the Rusty Playground? All right. Well, uh, Maddie, you want to take this one? Uh, well, Rusty Playground was sort of the imagery of a once pristine playground, maybe from the 60s, maybe shiny space age like. And by the time we're coming around as kids. It's sat out there and, you know, in the elements, it's starting to rust. <laughs> uh, there's no frills, you know, it's recess. I don't know. You're kind of left to your own devices at that time. Yeah, we, we were the uh, first generation that had mothers that stayed at home for the most part. And so we were all left to our own devices, which was good and bad. But yeah, you know, a rusty playground in the sense of, you know, now, thankfully, They've thought this through and all of the metal was covered with with plastic and they, you know, they have the, the ground has, you know, like rubber uh, mulch and stuff on it. And, you know, everything's as safe as it can be for the kids to have fun. And when we were growing up, the playgrounds were, you know, had some of them had concrete. They were on concrete. So that should say it all. Yeah. And then, like Maddie gravel, said, gravel, gravel mostly. And then uh, or gravel on concrete. And then yeah. they would have the merry-go-round things or whatever, you know, they would wobble because they're about to fall off and where you would put your hands would be kind of torn. So you'd get cut, you know, tetanus, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, but we loved it is what we had, right? That sounds yeah. charming. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a health danger. Um, so what? It, yeah. where can people find your podcast and what sort of conversations can they expect if they listen? Well, uh, you can go to therustyplayground.com and that's where our website is. And uh, we have our podcasts that are on all the relevant newfangled things that the kids have now with the Google talks and the yeah. Apple hears and whatever it is. And, uh, you know, you can hear our podcast where we're retooling it for yes. uh, for our, this phase of our lives. We we initially we started it to talk about all the things Gen X, you know, it's we're interested in letting people know what it was like growing up in the same time period that Stranger Things takes place, basically. And before that, in the 70s and so forth. And so we it got quite unwieldy, I'll put it that way. It did, yes. Yeah. So we would we would make these things and these episodes, and then I would include all kinds of references and and sound clips and video clips and all this stuff, and it just got so much. So 
we're just going to cut it back a bit as far as all that stuff goes and just be conversations between me and Maddie reminiscing about, uh, you know, what it was like to grow up in the, the 70s, be born in the 60s and, you know, flourish in the 80s and have amazing times in the 90s. And then now we're old men. Thank you both so much for joining me today to talk about MST3K. It was really lovely getting to hear you geek out about it. Well, thank and you. About your experiences and why it's just so deeply um, special and important to both of you. So thank you so much for your time. Um, everyone, if you're listening, check out the Rusty Playground podcast, especially if you're a Gen X and want some nostalgia, or if you just want to know how Gen X ticks. It's a really great way to kind of get into that perspective. Um, but thank you so much for joining us on Fan of the Fans. And until next time, stay nerdy. Hakiba. Hakiba.